a listener production. <coughs> Take it away, my dulcet-toned Adonis. Hello, Gistners. We are back with another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to discuss at a dinner party. And I'm back in my car by the beach in the tropics. <laughs> you are. You're still in lockdown. I am. And Things haven't really changed very much. What missed week? Huh? What do you mean? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still in lockdown in Melbourne. i got to say, Melbs, I can't believe this is the sixth time you've done this. So Caleb and I have been here for a little over a month and literally like, I've actually been getting a bit depressed, I think. Just like, not depressed. I I read this thing, um, I think it was in The Guardian, about a state of mind people are in at the moment. It's not depression. It's not, you're not feeling great and you're not totally depressed, but they call it languishing. You just feel like you're languishing. Did you mm. read that? Well, Adam Grant started talking about that months and months ago, back when we oh, were in okay. Melbourne for the comedy festival, because I remember sharing oh, that with a friend yeah. because her husband was experiencing that ongoing sort of languishing where it was, yeah, yeah. just not like the normal level of enjoyment and excitement and optimism that yeah. he was used to having in his life. It wasn't full on depression, but it was just a feeling of blah, blah. Meh, that's what ongoing. I'm. I think that's what I'm feeling. Like the other night, Caleb and I were eating dinner, and I just like put my knife and fork down, and I was looking at the floor, and he's like, "What?" And I just went, "I can't do it!" Just like fully, out. I was like, "I wanted to scream!" Like it's just. I think you know. I'm certainly just feeling what everyone else in lockdown is feeling. It sucks. It's the worst. But also for, for me personally, a huge part of how I manage my mental health is like uh, taking steps to make sure I don't get isolated. So I always make sure I have an office that I can go and work in because as a freelancer, it's very easy to just be at home all day, every day. I always make sure like I get up and get dressed and look nice. Like before COVID, people might remember if you were following me back then, I would do outfit of the day posts, which weren't just about me having a cool outfit of the day. It was also a mental health activity for me to like get up and have a cool outfit and get dressed and like little things like that. When you don't have to do them, it, it's really started to just make me feel a bit shit. So mm. I was talking to my psychiatrist yesterday and I'm going to start doing outfits of the day again Oh, because it just made me get up and get dressed. You know mm. what I mean? And mm-hmm. it sounds simple and nothing, but it's not. It, it really, I think, is going to help with my state of mind a little. Mm. So I'm saying it here to make me do it because clearly even though I – told my psychiatrist yesterday I would. I haven't done it today. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all can't see me, but I'm not in an outfit of the day, that's for sure. <laughs> Starting from tomorrow, mm-hmm. I'm going to do that. Hopefully that's going to help. Um, you know, I just, yeah, it sucks. It yeah, sucks. it does. But, I mean, you say that it's simple. The simple things can be the most yeah. effective, um, especially when you do multiple things. The thing that I really noticed, it's interesting, it's apt that we're talking about this right now because we're recording on Are You Okay Day. So it sort of mm. makes sense that we'd start talking about this now. But one of the things that I've noticed, because I've now been on the road on my own for almost three months now, mm. as my sort of languishing type mood has started to deepen, um, yeah. the thing that I realised is that I don't laugh as much 
obviously, when I'm not socialising the way that I normally would and many of us are in that boat. And so just finding the things that I know are guaranteed to make me cackle every day, even just for Mm. a few minutes, has really made a difference. And one of the things that I guarantee will work is if you Google pictures of tattoo fails of babies' faces. (laughs) You mentioned this last year. In the middle of lockdown last year, you mentioned this as well. It works. It works. It does. It totally does. I love that it is still a fail-safe option for you. It has been for years when I just need to laugh until I cry. Just type the words into Google, baby tattoo fail, and then scroll through those images for a few minutes. Your sides will split your eyes oh, will water. Dear. If you're anything like me, you'll dribble all over yourself and then you'll feel so much better afterwards. Oh, my God. Okay, that's good. I love it. Good <laughs> tip. <laughs> all right, shall we do some breaking news? Yes, please. <gasps> breaking news, breaking news. I got the scoop. I see extra, extra. Read all about it. About it. Breaking news. Okay. Here's a biggie. You and I were talking about it last time, whether Kristen Stewart was going to win a Razzie or an Mm. Oscar for Diana. The film has premiered. All the critics have seen it. And drumroll, please. (laughs) They are saying that it is a revelation. It is the performance of a generation. It will be remembered for years to come as one of the greatest feats of acting of all time. Like everybody is saying it is out of this world magnificent. I'm so shocked. I reserve judgment until I've seen it. (laughs) Sure. But I mean, the trailers come out where she says two words in the end and her accent sounds decent for Mm. those two words. But um, people are saying that it is, yeah, it's just an acting revelation. She is magnificent. Wow. And apparently it's a weird horror movie. Yeah. I read that description in that thing that you sent me that said it. Yeah, I guess because... It's not like, it's not a horror movie, but it's also not just a straight sort of biopic of Diana. Apparently it's very like um, weird and there's stuff going on and stylized. Yeah, Mm. it's very, it's like quite gothic and yeah. yeah, So, well, um, I guess it'll be all to do with psychological manipulation and torture effectively. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we'll see. We'll have to, maybe we'll do a live viewing. We've been promising for two years that we're going to do a live viewing of Cats and we still haven't done it. Maybe we'll do Cats and and that new. Double feature. Spencer. Spencer, Spencer. yeah. We'll do that. So, um, oh, here's a a very quick horrifying one. Someone from McDonald's in the last week came out and said, you know Grimace, the McDonald's mascot, the big purple thing? Oh, yeah, the blob, yeah. Like if you remember, they don't really use them anymore, but back when we were young, the McDonald's mascots were like a big deal. You had the Hamburglar, you had Grimace, the big purple thing, you had Ronald McDonald who was horrifying. Birdie. Birdie. Okay, so someone from McDonald's this week came out and said that someone asked him what Grimace is meant to be, Mm. like why is it just a big purple blob, Mm. and he said, oh, Grimace is a taste bud. (laughs) I know. I know. Ew. Why, McDonald's? Why? That, and 
the taste bud's name is Grimace. I mean, I certainly Grim- I make know. a face when I think so about when you- eating McDonald's. But, <laughs> See, I don't. I love McDonald's. But, yeah, so when you take Grimace. It makes your taste buds Grimace. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It might just be one of those things where one random unofficial McDonald's person said it on TikTok. I can't even remember where I read it. I have no source for you. I just uh- saw it on the internet. <laughs> It's probably not official. It's all right. I feel no need to dig any further. I'm just going to accept it as true. Thank you. Mm, Okay. And the other big news is that Jamie Spears has filed to end the conservatorship. This is heartbreaking news. This only happened, what, 24 hours ago? Yes. And, okay, so I read a little bit more on it today. He petitioned the court to end the conservatorship, saying that based on recent things that Brittany has said, Mm. he doesn't think she needs it anymore. And it's like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. But also there's a couple of caveats. So first of all, he says he wants all the financial stuff settled before he exits, Mm. which could take a very long time because apparently Uh there's a lot of very complex finances. And also he's petitioned the court to end the conservatorship, but his petition won't be heard until January because everything in court takes so long. So you're kidding. Yeah. It was like a big announcement yesterday, but now nothing's going to happen for months anyway. Oh yeah. But anyway, you and I immediately messaged what has happened in his world. What Mm. information does he have? What's happened that made him suddenly go, okay, I've got to back down because literally two weeks ago, he and his team were releasing public statements saying her mental health is so bad. You have no idea. Mm. We're keeping it private for her own sake, but she's basically effed and Mm. she'd die without him. And we're just not telling you, but it's bad. And then two weeks later, he's like, okay, never mind. I'm leaving. It's like, what happened to make him suddenly change his mind? Yeah. Well, as we said, I think it seems pretty obvious that the writing's on the wall. He's going to be kicked out and the conservatorship will end. Yeah. Is it just a matter of him sort of running away scared or has he been offered a little deal Mm. and, you know, promised some leniency if he just makes it easy for them? Yeah, see, that's what I think. I think it's gotten to a point because Brittany's made it very clear that she wants him to go to prison Mm. and she's also through doing this made the concept of conservatorships you know a new a big news story so people are thinking about conservatorships in general and how they are often abused Mm. and so I think he's at risk of becoming like the the face of dodgy abusive Mm. conservators and I think maybe his lawyer said to him look this conservatorship is ending whether you want it to or not, the mm. best you can do now is act like you're cooperating so you don't get sent to prison at yeah. the end of this. You mm. know what I mean? I don't know. And you know what? I hope that doesn't work. I hope he does yeah, go to prison. Me too. I hope he has to pay back every single dollar that he stole from Brittany. I hope that he is forever remembered as the poster boy of dodgy conservatorships. Yes. Um, Yeah, he deserves no leniency whatsoever. Agreed. Mm. What a piece of S-I-S-H-I-T. I just struggled to spell shit. (laughs) S-I-T. S-H-I-T. Oh, God, I've been in lockdown too long. Oh, cheers, honey. Okay, here we go. Here's where we get to what people really want. 
Um, Elizabeth Holmes. Yes. Her trial starts this week. Ooh. And John Carreyrou, the man who originally wrote the story that broke her whole thing wide open and basically was the what is the reason her whole business collapsed and he was the one who figured out it was all a fraud, the journalist. Mm. He wrote um, Bad Blood, the book mm. about it all. He has a podcast out called Bad Blood, the final chapter, and Ooh. it's going to be like covering what's happening in the trial. Mm-hmm. And he's already done three episodes where he just goes in depth to a couple of other things like... For example, when she was um, running Theranos, there was a big Ebola outbreak and um, Mm -hmm. she decided that she was going to try and use Theranos to, like, help test people for Ebola. And she was trying to get the government to pay her to put testing machines at airports to test people coming back from Ebola-riddled countries. Grift. But she knew it didn't work. Grift. And then when Ebola, when they realised that the Ebola outbreak, everyone was panicking, and then a few months later it was like, oh, actually we've got a handle on it and it's not that bad. So it wasn't in the news anymore and it wasn't a big Mm. thing. She kind of lost interest in it. Mm. Grifter. So anyway, he goes into some cool, interesting stuff like that in this first few episodes, but then the next episodes coming are going to be as the trial happens. Mm. But he did this amazing interview in The Guardian. I'll put the links in the show notes because essentially what they have sort of revealed and what's coming out now in all the prelim court documents and stuff is that she is going to argue that she is not at fault because she was abused by and controlled by Sonny, her Mm. business partner who she was also secretly dating, a man who's like I think 25 years older than her or something. Mm. And so I'll just – I want to read you just these couple of bits from the Guardian interview about what John Carreyrou thinks about that. I mean, he basically thinks that she's very grossly and cynically – latching on to the Me Too movement to try and get Mm. out of um, being held criminally liable for horrible things that she did, but I'll read Uh this to you. Uh Do you think she will testify? If I had to bet, I think she will testify, not just because of what I've said about her tolerance for risk and her confidence, but because it looks like her strategy is going to be to blame Sonny and say he was abusive. If that is the strategy, I don't think it will be enough to put psychologists on the stand to convince the jurors they will want to hear from her how Sonny abused her, what effect that had on her and how it affected her judgment. Maybe I will be proven wrong. In most criminal cases, defence lawyers advise their clients not to testify because it's a huge gamble. It opens you up to cross-examination from the prosecution, which can backfire in a huge way. If she does testify, it will certainly go against the grain of what usually happens. And then they ask him, given the defense that we're kind of anticipating, what is your take on her relationship with Sonny Balwani? And he says, he definitely was a bad influence, but the notion that he controlled her to me is laughable. They were in this together in a partnership of equals. If anything, when they disagreed, she had the final say. I know this not only from the six years of reporting I've done on this and all the people I've interviewed who saw them operate together up close, but... I have also perused five years of text messages between them that were exhibits in the SEC case against her. You also have to remember the fact that she had 99.7% of the voting rights in this company. She was in full control. Was she living with him and were they consulting each other all the time? Yes, but I do not buy the notion that he was the puppeteer and she was the puppet. 
it seems pretty bloody obvious to me. Me too, but, you know, she's... I'm glad that's out there on the public record. He also, um, in the podcast, pretty... He says, look, I know this is going to make me sound harsh and it's going to make me sound cynical, but a lot of people do think that she planned her pregnancy because to turn up in court... She had her baby, like, what, a few weeks ago? So she's a very new mother. She's very blonde. She's very pretty. She's very timid-looking. And to turn up in court, a new mother, saying you were abused when you were a young woman, I don't know, could go her way. Mm -hmm. It's a very... That also is very obvious. Yes. I mean, you know, it's... I I don't know. I'm fascinated. I... I will be, I'll be appalled if she doesn't go to prison, but I won't be surprised. Mm -hmm. I mean, that tactic to me just screams of desperation to try Mm. to throw him under the bus like that and Mm -hmm. make him seem like the puppeteer. Like that to me feels like end of the line, last ditch attempt. And I don't think it's going to be successful. So yeah, listen, this final quote, I wasn't going to read it, but I'll read it to you now. They ask him, this story has inspired a lot of movies, books and other media. Why do you think it's so compelling to people? And he says, Scams are compelling in general, and US capitalism is really good at producing them. In this case, people are fascinated with the psychology of Holmes. How did she rationalize behaving the way she did? How was she able to pull off these lies for so long? How was she able to manipulate people for so long? The way she deepened her voice at times. I'm Elizabeth Holmes. The clothes she wore. She is a real chameleon. She's also got this extraordinary tolerance for risk because to pull off what she pulled off, going live with a blood testing device that didn't work, that takes chutzpah. Even how she is handling the case now, most people would have pled out four years ago. She has chosen to take this trial to court to roll the dice. Yeah. You know what we always say? Pathological lies always double down. They double down. Mm Mm-hmm. She probably does believe that she's going to win. She probably believes that this tactic is, you know, a really smart move that's going to work. She's wrong. She's absolutely wrong, but I'm sure she believes it. Even if everything doesn't work, even if at the end of the day she does get, you know, held liable for something, surely at sentencing they won't send a new mother to prison. Mm. Like that's what she thinks. (laughs) She's wrong. I reckon she's definitely going to get a big slap and a big sentence. The um, podcast is really good. It's called Bad Blood, the final chapter. It's hosted by John Carreyrou and he just explores a lot of these sticky questions. I mean, he also talks about the psychology of someone, the selfishness of someone to have a new baby knowing that they have a trial coming up in which they could be sent to prison for a very long time. Like he's like, Mm. there's just something about that. It, it, whether she's using it as a tool or what, but that risk is just either she truly doesn't believe she'll go to prison or she doesn't care that much about how it will affect the kid if she does. Well, I mean, Lindy Chamberlain did the same thing, right? When mm. she was getting close to her trial, she was scared that she wasn't going to have the opportunity to get pregnant again. And so that's why she became pregnant with her fourth child. Uh, that's a good um, point. And it, 
it did cause a lot of backlash for her because a lot of people have the sentiment that we have for Elizabeth, which is, mm. okay, that seems tactical to us and mm. someone's life should not be part of your... Strategy. Strategy, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, it does sort of feel icky. Lindy genuinely did it with the best of intentions, though. She wanted to, mm. you know, she wanted to have a daughter her entire life. And look, I would speculate that maybe Elizabeth also has done it with the best of intentions, except Lindy didn't create a product that had the potential to seriously harm people's health yes. and result in their death just to make money. So Lindy is That's not the right. kind of person. Elizabeth is. So mm-hmm. that's what that's where the difference is for me. And it's a big difference. It's yeah. significant. Yes. Mm. Anyway, so we'll keep you uh, posted. And that was breaking news. Okay, Jacob. Mm-hmm. We're doing something a little different this week. Mm-hmm. I've been feeling really defeated by the news that Texas in the US Mm. has uh, put through a law in the last week that bans abortions from six weeks. And that is, most women don't even know they're pregnant at that stage. Mm. I mean, in Australia, you generally aren't even allowed to get an abortion until you're at six weeks because that oh. is when they know that, oh. you you know, you haven't miscarried. It, it's big enough that they can make sure that they've done the procedure correctly. Mm-hmm. Like they generally make you wait until that point. It's just really, really scary that a state that is like in a, in a modern Western country that is like ours, a state mm. that could be ours has done this. And then what's really scary about it is Texas passed this law saying they were not going to allow abortions from six weeks, but the Mm. American law, the national law in that country is a law called Roe v. Wade that was decided in 1973 that any woman is allowed to decide if she wants an abortion or not. So abortion is legal. So the Texas law went up to the Supreme Court and generally the Supreme Court would say, sorry, Texas, you've put through this thing saying you're not going to allow abortions at six weeks, but Mm. the national law is you're not allowed to do that. Women are allowed to decide what they want to do with their own bodies because that's Mm. the law of America. So this law that Texas went put through went up to the Supreme Court and everyone was like, it's okay because they've got to follow the precedent. Mm. But they didn't because while Trump was in office, he put through two conservative judges, two very religiously conservative judges, and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died Mm. and he replaced her with a woman who is literally part of a religious organisation that refers to women as handmaids. Mm. And so very conservative, very religious people now are on the Supreme Court and they voted to uphold this new law that Texas put through. And so banning abortion in Texas after six weeks, essentially stops 90% of all abortions in Texas. Mm. The law also, and this is really scary, encourages vigilante justice. So they're giving $10,000 bounties to anybody who dobs in someone who gets an abortion or helps someone get an abortion. Mm. 
they're fining people for like, so, you know, if, if you, for example, they're saying if you are a Uber driver who drives a woman to an abortion clinic, they'll fine the Uber driver for taking part um. in that abortion. Uh. Thank God, though, companies like Uber and Lyft released statements saying this is ridiculous, women have a right to choose, and if any of our drivers get fined, we'll pay it for them. Mm-hmm. But still, it's really horrific. I want to read you a couple of quotes here that I've screenshotted. There is one here from Lindy West, who's a great female writer. The TV show Shrill is based on her book, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. She said um, in an interview once, Anti-choice people are not trying to stop abortion. They are trying to legislate who can and can't have abortions because conservative politicians, their wives and mistresses and daughters will always be able to get an abortion somewhere. Mm. Very true. Mm. All anti-choice rhetoric does is keep people trapped in poverty for generations. That's the goal. And if it wasn't the goal, they would spend their time and money on comprehensive sex education, free birth control and free contraception, Mm -hmm. which is true because in the Netherlands, I'll read you this quote, abortion is freely available on demand, yet the Netherlands boasts the lowest abortion rate in the world and the complication and death rates for abortion are minuscule. How do they do it? First of all, contraception is widely available and free. It's covered by the National Health Insurance Plan. Holland also carries out extensive public education on contraception, family planning and sexuality. Of course, some people say that teaching kids about sex and contraception will only encourage them to have lots of sex, but Dutch teenagers tend to have less frequent sex starting at an older age than American teenagers and the Dutch teenage pregnancy rate is six times lower than the US. Mm-hmm. And this final quote I want to read, it's been going around a lot on social media by Pastor Dave Barnett in Alabama. He said, the unborn are a convenient group of people to advocate for. They never make demands of you. They are morally uncomplicated, unlike the incarcerated, addicted, or the chronically poor. They don't resent your condescension or complain that you are not politically correct. Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Unlike orphans, they don't need money, education, or childcare. Unlike aliens, they don't bring all the racial, cultural, and religious baggage that you dislike. They allow you to feel good about yourself without any work at creating or maintaining relationships. And when they they are born, you can forget about them because they cease to be unborn. Mm. You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power or privilege, without reimagining social structures, apologising or making reparations to anyone. They are, in short, the perfect people to love if you want to claim you love Jesus but actually dislike people who breathe. Mm. Prisoners, immigrants, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, All the groups that are specifically mentioned in the Bible, they all get thrown under the bus for the unborn. Mm. (laughs) I, this law that has passed in Texas has just made me feel so overwhelmed and crappy, like Mm. with everything that's going on for women right now. I mean, with the Taliban taking over rule in Afghanistan and just immediately starting beating and murdering women. And then in our own country with like our federal government just refusing to take sexual harassment or assault seriously, even when it happens in like our national place of parliament, they Mm. refuse to even acknowledge that it's happened. I just felt this week tired, (laughs) like Mm. just tired. And like, will women ever not be Will we ever not be screwed? Like 
Because this law in Texas, it's not going to stop abortions. It's only going to increase dangerous abortions. Yes. And I know we often joke that, like, America's effed and, like, you know, we feel so lucky to live in Australia. This is a hop, skip and away. What's that saying? Hop, Hop, skip skip and and a jump jump, away from happening here. It it Mm. really is. We talked in breaking news earlier this year about how um, South Australia only decriminalised abortion in 2021, this Mm. year. So, I mean, this isn't, you know, you just need a few of the wrong people in government who tip the scales with their votes, like Mm. what's just happened in the Supreme Court, and bam, Mm. your rights are gone. Like, I mean, we currently have a fundamentalist Christian in charge of our country. If he was allowed to, I'm sure, and he had the votes behind him, something like this could go through and... I just was thinking, how are we living in a time where a state in the US refuses to force people to wear masks, Mm. but it does force women to have babies? Yeah. It makes no sense. It it makes you think about the fact that they are just doing what they think is going to make them more popular. And that is the thing. I mean, there's so much about politics that's entirely effed, but one of the biggest things that it stems from is the fact that all the politicians want is to stay in office and Mm. they want to continue to win election after election. So they're just going to do the thing that is going to be most popular. And for some reason, for some incomprehensible reason, being pro-life is some form of virtue signalling that works well, it's, for people. it's that quote from that pastor. Yeah. Like advocating for the unborn is the easiest thing to advocate for. It's not problematic. It's And it's also like why would you, there's this amazing quote from um, George Carlin and this really sums up what infuriates me about this because, you know, I was a kid who grew up in foster care. I was a kid who grew up in a system that didn't take care of me properly, same Mm. as my sisters. And it's like, as soon as you're born, they're like, oh, good luck to you. (laughs) But Mm. like before, like, and so George Carlin has this quote, boy, these conservatives are really something, aren't they? They're all in favour of the unborn. They will do anything for the unborn. But once you're born, you're on your own. Uh. Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. After that, they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. No nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no head start, Mm. no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're fine. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, all of this is, it, it's just this last week made me feel, maybe it's lockdown, it's a combination of things. Mm. I'm already said I'm languishing and feeling like shit. It's made me just so upset and just feel so unsafe and on edge as a woman. It's a really hard thing to describe the feeling of knowing constantly every day that, your body and your rights are in the hands of other people and mm. it could very easily and very quickly be taken away from you before you even know it's happened. Yeah. It's just a very uneasy, weird thing to think about. And, and this it, thing in Texas this week has really made me stress about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of this has really stressed me out and made me feel uneasy and on edge and upset and defeated. And I've just been like what's the point what like 
we are effed no matter what. What can I do? And I thought, okay, I can't do a lot, but I am a storyteller. That's what I do. I tell stories. That's what I'm good at. I write stories. I tell stories in lots of different ways. So I guess one thing I can do this week to make me feel like I have a little bit of, I don't want to say control because I don't think any woman will ever feel like she has that, to make me feel like I'm at least doing something, one small thing, contributing in some way to making things easier for women and, and, and making sure people know that women have the right to do what they want with their bodies and make choices about their bodies. I can just do what I'm good at, which is tell stories. Mm -hmm. And, um, I have written in the past about abortions that I've had. So I thought this week, um, we would do just the gist of my abortions. Let's do it. Let's do it. So um, I initially wrote about this in my second memoir because I'm insufferable and I had two memoirs by the time I was 30. (laughs) And my second memoir is called Every Lie I've Ever Told. And I wrote about my abortions in it. Mm. And to be honest, I could have written about them in my first book and I wanted to, but at the time I really wanted the book to be successful and I was worried that if I had abortions in it, it would uh, affect its commercial viability. So I, so I left it out of my first book. Mm. But then by the time I was doing my second book, I like had a bit of success behind me and I just was like, effort. Mm. You know, I felt a lot more comfortable in my ability to be able to talk about this stuff and not have it affect me. I'm in that kind of privileged position. Mm. And I know that there are a lot of women for whom like talking about this stuff is something they don't want to do. There are a lot of women for whom talking about this is something they can't do, Mm. but I, but I can, so I Mm. will. So that's what I'm doing. Which I think is really helpful because it is the sort of thing that needs to be normalised, destigmatised. You know, we're not saying that it's something that's frivolous at all, but it is a part of life that um, shouldn't be, people shouldn't feel any sense of shame surrounding it. Yeah, that's true. And um, my chapters on abortion in my memoir were then... um, Excerpted, excerpted, excerpted. How do you say that? Excerpted. Uh, yeah, yeah. Excerpted. They were put into a book that a lot of Australian women contributed to called Choice Words, a collection of writing about abortion. And that came out in Australia, I think in like, I think it was about 2018, was it, mm-hmm. that that came out? So it's also, that's an excellent book that um, a lot of people contributed to that, like women who've, had them, uh, doctors who've done them. It just it, It's a, just a book with women and people talking about it because it, mm. if you can and if you feel comfortable, it's something that, you know, I think we should, we should try and take the stigma off talking about this stuff. So here we go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read to you the chapters I wrote about my abortions, plural. Mm-hmm. My face must have looked exactly how the overachieving sperm inside me was making my stomach feel because (laughs) (laughs) I'm a good writer. That was funny. (laughs) I wrote this so long ago because the nurse giving me my results didn't even take a moment to assume that this was a life event I was thrilled about. Oh, um, 
oh, I'm so sorry, it's positive, mm. you're pregnant. When someone says I'm sorry instead of congratulations, you know <laughs> that you are definitely too young to be pregnant. Mm. I wanted to vomit. Not because I was terrified or shocked or anxious to find out that I was knocked up at 21, but because whatever little swimmer had managed to successfully plough its way into me was now having some kind of epic sperm gastro problem that could only be explained by it having eaten bad fish of some kind. Not only had my egg been infiltrated, it had been infiltrated by an obviously defective sperm with a stomach bug. And now all I wanted to do was vomit all day, every day. Why are men, honestly? Oh, my God. I'm going to tell you the story about the nurse this week who, oh, I had the, okay, this is a part of the abortion story, guys. Quick, side, sidebar, sidebar. I had to go get a blood test this week and I was waiting like 40 minutes at the place and like they were obviously like just really, really busy. And by the time I got in there, the nurse was so apologetic. She's like, I'm so sorry. We've just been run off our feet. And she said to me, honestly, I've had three fainters this morning. And I went, really? She goes, yes. And she looked at me and she goes, it's always men. And I went, what do you mean? She goes, it's always men. She said, they look faint, they look white, they look like they are scared at, scared of the needle and you say, are you going to be okay? Do you have a problem with needles? And they say, no, no, no. And then you take their blood and afterwards you say, you look faint, are you sure you're okay? And they say, yes, I'm fine. And then they stand up and they hit the floor. And she goes, it's <laughs> always men. It happened three times this morning. She goes, it's never women. You say to women, like, are you feeling okay? And they go, actually, no, I, I'm really not. And I get them some juice and I, it, mm. you know, prevention is better. Because once you've fainted, I have to then spend 40 minutes with you, like taking care of you and blah, 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 blah. Babysitting you. Babysitting them. And she go, and she just goes to me, honestly, why are men like that? And I just went, why are men? And she just went, ah! <laughs> she could, she, it was the best thing she'd ever heard. She could not stop laughing. She was screaming. She's like, why are men? Yes, exactly. End of sentence. Oh, I love it, darling. admitting that they're scared of needles. I know. Such Just say you don't like silly it. Silly bravado. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Back to my abortion. <laughs> so that's how I knew, actually. I can remember the exact moment I knew I was pregnant. I could just feel something wrong in my body. I was working in a cinema and I got a hot flush while sitting on the toilet. Then I was really suddenly hit with a wave of nausea like nothing I'd ever felt before. It was the kind of nausea that takes away any sense of dignity a person has. I literally took off my top and bra, lay down on the cold tiles of the bathroom floor with my pants around my ankles, just praying for the feeling to pass and being absolutely absolutely certain that no other person in the history of time had ever suffered like I was suffering in that exact moment. Mm-hmm. Isn't that awful when you feel like you're going to vomit and you're just like, I don't care about anything. I'm taking all my clothes off and lying on this disgusting bathroom floor. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, if when and you feel like you need you, to vomit, it's any it, dignity's nothing. Desperately trying to seek relief while also wishing for death. Yes. Mm. Oh God. I spent the next 10 minutes throwing up pretty violently. This wasn't cough a little while a boy holds your hair back throwing up. This was heaving 
the blood vessels in your eyes burst kind of throwing up. It was graphic. Once I was done, I sat back on the toilet, a little worried, to be honest, as I didn't know if vaginal tinea was a thing, but if you were ever going to get it, it would definitely be after lying naked on the floor of a public cinema bathroom. (laughs) I closed my eyes and took a deep breath, trying to compose myself. And as I sat there, entirely naked now, except for my shoes, the words just flashed across my brain, you're pregnant. I peed on a stick as soon as I finished work and the two blue lines immediately came into focus, immediately, like they were shoving the certainty in my face. They didn't even give me the decency of some ambiguity. Like, honestly, in movies, this also I'm just talking now, Mm. they act like it's this thing and you wait and forever and it's like, no, when you're pregnant, it just goes bing. It just, you've barely pulled it out from your pee stream Mm. and it says it. It's like, you know. Okay. Well, learning. For me, anyway. I'm learning. For me, anyway, that's what happened. What's the next brilliant piece of writing I did? Oh, here we go. Fitty shit burgers. I threw up again because the initial vomit had clearly only been some kind of vomit welcoming ceremony designed to introduce me to a new vomit focused way of life. And from that moment on, the vomiting did not stop. It was all day, every day. That's why I became convinced my egg had been fertilized by a defective sperm. I was so nauseous, I could barely stand upright. And then a few days after peeing on that stick, I was still trying to hold in vom while sitting opposite the very concerned looking nurse who had just taken my blood. This isn't something you wanted, is it? She said, appearing to be even more upset than me. I almost felt obligated to give her her some kind of comfort hug. Not really, no, I said. Mm. We both sat there in silence for a second. I tried to decide if a 25-year-old nurse could answer my question about the possibility of a single sperm having gastro. But she seemed to be really (laughs) emotionally affected by my test results, so I thought it best not to add to her stress. Okay, um... So thanks, I said, and left the tiny room. nugget. I hobbled over to the doctor's room. He reacted the same way as the nurse. So what are your plans? He asked. Oh, abortion, definitely, I quickly replied. He nodded and reached behind him for a pamphlet that was hidden behind a pile of other pamphlets. The pamphlets on show at the front clearly weren't meant for slutty girls who had screwed up their lives. He handed it to me without speaking. It was for a place called the preterm clinic, also known as the you f***ed up so bad the doctor hides this pamphlet behind the other pamphlets clinic. So do I just, can I just walk in or whatever, like this afternoon, I asked. I was clueless. As far as I was concerned, I was getting that thing taken out immediately. I didn't like that my defence system had been compromised. Also, I really just wanted to stop the vomit. Well, you're only at about four weeks, so you might have to wait a while, but make an appointment to discuss it with them. Wait a while? Say what now? Why would I have to wait a while? I asked, panic rising along with Morvom. You really should speak to them about it. He snapped back. He really, really did not want to be talking about this with me. I took my naughty girl pamphlet and left, dialing the preterm clinic number before I was even out the door. The clinic was less than a kilometre away across the city in an unassuming, nondescript building. It certainly wasn't immediately obvious that it was an abortion clinic. There weren't any protesters, which, to be honest, I was mildly disappointed about because I just really want to get into an argument with one of them. (laughs) I really wanted to see someone holding up a graphic sign while singing Bible hymns through angry tears. I wanted to walk past them in defiance, but there was just a few office workers, a cafe. That's about it really. A perfectly normal city street. 
the only sign that this was a special kind of clinic Mm. was the prison-like locked security door. You couldn't just walk into this place. You had to push a buzzer, after which someone would look at you through a camera and ask you to identify yourself over an intercom. Mm. And if you had an appointment, they'd buzz you into a locked glass area where the staff at reception could get a look at you and decide if you were a legitimate woman in need or a crazy person holding up a graphic sign while singing Bible hymns through angry tears. If you passed a visual test, they unlocked the final door and let you into the actual clinic. Mm -hmm. In my appointment, it was confirmed that I would indeed have to wait to get this thing out of me. The lovely yet no-nonsense female doctor told me I wasn't far enough along to get the termination done at that early stage. This was bizarre information to me. Not far enough along, I was supposed to let it get bigger, allow the hostile takeover to continue. Apparently, yes, I needed to be at least six weeks, but preferably eight to guarantee that the procedure would be successful. That's okay. what's crazy about Texas. Yes. So is this part of their diabolical, disgusting scheme that is it a possibility under six weeks that they could like miss the embryo? Like think Absolutely, that, got yes. it, that they could leave it behind. That's so, why they prefer not to do it. Yeah. Okay. That's why they want it done that yeah. young. Mm-hmm. Most places won't do them until you're at least six to eight weeks. And Texas knows that. That's why they picked six weeks because most places aren't doing it before that anyway. You know uh-huh. what I mean? That's why when they ban them from six weeks, that's 90% of abortions in that state done. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to know the average like realization time for women when they're pregnant? Yeah, it's generally not until after six weeks. <laughs> like uh-huh. it, you don't know. I mean, because that six weeks is actually four weeks because they include the time of conception from two weeks before that, like the the way they time Ovulation. the period and the egg and stuff. Yeah. Mm. So like it's actually only four weeks, but it, um, I mean, it's I, I don't have the exact stats, but I know it's, you know, women don't know. I mean, at this point I was, um, four weeks, my second abortion, which I don't talk about in as much detail, but uh, you know, I was almost 12 and I hadn't realized cause I was still getting light periods and you know, I was a bit chubby, so I hadn't really noticed anything and I didn't get sick in that one. So I just didn't even realize I was the second time. Mm-hmm. Like you just, yeah. It's all just a way of making it more difficult for women. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I burst into tears. That's a month away. Eight weeks is a month away, I cried. I'm so sick and I'm throwing up more than I ever have in my life and I seriously think the sperm that broke through has gastro and I don't know how it beat the others when it's clearly defective and I can't take this for another month. I seriously can't. We really don't like to do it any earlier than that, I'm afraid, she replied, politely ignoring my near hysterical babbling. But what if it's a bad sperm, I implored. I seriously think I got a bad one. It's not normal to be this sick. It's infecting me. It's a demon. Succubus. 
She took a deep breath and smiled, the kind of polite smile that people give when it's taking everything within the deepest deepest depths of their soul to be patient with the idiot standing in front of them, i.e. every day I worked in retail. (laughs) That's just morning sickness, she said. Nausea is totally normal during a pregnancy, especially at this early stage. It's not really possible for a single sperm to have gastro. (laughs) She started... (laughs) (laughs) Really? She started rattling off something to do with ginger and lemonade and taking deep breaths, but I was done listening. As she continued to talk about what the termination would involve, all I could think was how stupid I had been to let this happen. My grandmother, my mother, and my older sister had all been pregnant before 21, and I was so cocky in my belief that I would avoid going down that road. And now, not only had I failed to break the family curse of becoming a host body before 21, I was also essentially homeless and directionless, and I couldn't afford to dye my regrowth. What a f*** up. After years of being sent back and forth between my alcoholic mother and a variety of different concerned adults willing to step in, I was finally removed from her care permanently at 14. My uncle Ben took me in, sent me to a very fancy boarding school and tried to give me some stability and consistency in what was left of my childhood. At 20, though, that childhood was over and he asked me to move out. I didn't really have anywhere to go, so I just sort of floated around for a while staying on different couches. I spent half my time on my best friend Tony's fold-out in King's Cross. Remember his little fold-out in his tiny little apartment in King's Cross? And the other half going between my older sister Rhiannon's house and my mum's house, both in Liverpool and Sydney's southwest. I'd stopped going to drama school because I couldn't afford the fees my uncle had been helping me with, so now I could basically be described as Rosie, homeless cinema worker, cleaning up popcorn and busting guys getting secret handjobs off their girlfriends during Fast and Furious movies. I was, you have no idea how many hand jobs I busted when you're an usher. Oh, no. You. Did you just shine your torch on them? Oh, yeah. We, we loved doing it. We tut, loved tut, doing tut. it. Yeah. Shame. We loved, and we all have um, little walkie talkies that we talk to each other over. So we'd be like, just caught a handy. Just caught a handy. Cinema seven. Just caught a handy. <laughs> it was a fun job. It was awesome. a really fun job. <laughs> I was hoping to work enough so that I could afford to move into a share house close to the city, at which point I would reassess and try to actually do something with my life. I wanted to go to university, be a writer, maybe even put that time at drama school to use. Yeah, we definitely did that. (laughs) Um, But at that stage, I was living across three different couches and pulling clothes as needed out of the boxes I had stashed in my mum's garage. What a perfect time to get pregnant. It was a one-night stand. A guy I met on Purple Sneakers Night at a bar called the Abercrombie in Chippendale. Yes. Pause while every guy who went to Purple Sneakers back around 2009 tries to remember if they hooked up with me, if you were a skinny hipster and an asshole, probably. (laughs) We made out a bit. Then he mentioned that he lived close to my sister, so we got the same train home. Then I accidentally got off at his stop instead of my sister's and accidentally went to his house and accidentally had sex with him. I was on the pill (laughs) and we used a condom. So that defective little sperm must have been really fucking determined. I didn't have this guy's number. I didn't even know his last name. It was just a random hookup that I didn't think would be memorable in any way. And now I was the one sitting in an abortion clinic being told I would have to have this thing inside me for another month before I could do anything about it. I was also the one who had to worry about paying for it since it was going to cost around $800. 
I'm sorry, how much? I said, thudding back to reality upon hearing such an unexpected number. Oh, that's if you get a general anesthetic, the doctor replied, which means you'll be put completely to sleep during the procedure. But most women just get the twilight sedation, which means you'll still be asleep, but it's not as invasive as the general. It's more like a light sleep. And how much is the twilight sedation? I asked, praying for a much lower number, about $400. So half as much. I really recommend that option for you. There's no reason you would need a general. So I had to pay $400 to be put to sleep, but only kind of. And then from what I could gather, have something shoved up into my uterus that acted like a vacuum. Apparently there wouldn't be pain, but discomfort, which Mm. every woman knows is code for, there will definitely be pain. Mm. This was bullshit. If men had to get abortions, they would come in chocolate form, be less than $10 and available at every convenience (laughs) store. I booked in for a termination, performed under twilight sedation for four weeks time. Then I caught the train to my mum's house and spent the night puking. Then I spent the next day puking and the next night puking and the next day after that. It just wouldn't stop. After a few days, I realized I wouldn't be able to leave my mum's house. I could barely walk to the bathroom without being sick, let alone catch the train into the city to clean up popcorn at the movies. I lied and told them I had pneumonia (laughs) and wouldn't be able to come in for a couple of weeks. Then I left the couch and went upstairs to one of mum's spare bedrooms. It had a single bed that had apparently belonged to some flatmate mum had been sharing with for a while. Other than a bedside table, the rest of the room was empty. It was very sad and very, very grimy. The kind of room you imagine the police raiding to find evidence after a creepy man with a thin moustache gets busted masturbating on a train. Oh, it was so gross. (laughs) And the only evidence they find is a collection of ceramic clowns. But I was desperate, and if I was going to be staying at my mum's for a while, I needed to be in a room where I could close the door to escape her drinking. I couldn't find any sheets, so I laid a towel down on the mattress to protect me from the germs of what I was now convinced was masturbating train man's bed. I covered myself with a doona riddled with cigarette burn holes and tried to sleep. This was honestly one of the worst times of my life looking back. I don't know how I did it, and it was like... Before good internet was a thing, it was before, like, I didn't have a laptop or anything. I remember I had a little TV in the room that just got, like, channel 7, 9, and 10. Mm. And, like, I would just wake up and just watch Ready, Steady, Cook. <laughs> and, like, you know what I mean? Like, just all those daytime, like, I, it was, I just woke up and spewed and slept and spewed and slept and spewed. And I couldn't move. I couldn't walk. It was really bad. I mean, it turns out I had, um, this thing that we'll get to, but it was okay. just terrible. A few days later, the nausea still hadn't relented. I spent my days trying to sleep, waking up, puking, trying to eat, puking, trying to sleep again. My older sister, Rhiannon, who'd had a daughter, told me that maybe I should go to the doctor because she did not remember being that sick during her own pregnancy. But the doctor at the clinic had told me it was normal, so I just decided to stick it out. I developed complete tunnel vision to get through it. I just had to last four weeks until it would be over. And half of the first week was already done. Mm -hmm. Rhiannon brought over a crappy little TV from her house. Oh yeah, here we go. It only picked up channel. I don't even remember what I wrote. (laughs) I'm like (laughs) preempting that I wouldn't have put this in. Of course I put this in. It only picked up channel nine and channel 10, but I switched it on and bunkered down. TV could get me through anything, anything. Peter Everett on Ready Steady Cook. I thought that was Pete Evans. 
Was no, he on Pete that? Everett. He was a chef on it, but the host oh, was Pete Everett. Okay, right. And then you'd hold up your tomato or your capsicum to vote for the winner. One of my friends was a contestant on there one time. Shut up. I yeah. love Ready. They should bring that back. And um, because she was a gymnast, they made her do the splits on the table. <laughs> She really didn't want to, but it was one of those things where the whole crowd was whipped into a frenzy to peer pressure her into doing it. And she's like, we're meant to be cooking on this surface, but okay, I'll squash my badge onto it. (laughs) And I'll just cut food on it. Uh, I love daytime TV. Oh, dear. I hoped at some point the nausea would stop, but it just kept going. I was still having trouble getting up. I would go downstairs to the kitchen to mix powdered chicken stock with water, but I had to pull a chair over to the stove because I literally couldn't stand for the 10 minutes it took the water to boil. I would get mm. that nauseous. It just, mm. it was like being permanently carsick, but the car would never pull over and also it was spinning. If there is a God besides Oprah, he was certainly punishing me for having sex with a guy just because he lived close to my sister's house. (laughs) That's really why I did it. (laughs) Mum was working during the days and was drunk most of the nights, so I was pretty much on my own. Every couple of days when Rhiannon had time, she would bring me Gatorade and soup. But other than that, it was just me and my little TV picking up Channel 9 and Channel 10. The first week passed, then the second, then the third. Can I just say... I'm clearly not someone who should be having a baby. If that's not evident from the mm-hmm. very sorry state of affairs I've mm-hmm. just described, like to mm-hmm. have made me do. Oh, okay. The and this is not passed. an isolated case. No, that's no. the whole point here. There are millions of women who've been in the same position, if not worse, who have needed access to a safe, affordable abortion. Thank you, Jacob. Mwah. Yes, it is so common. And I'm even privileged in it. Like I I was technically homeless at the time, but I at least had a, a mother with a spare room, even though it was a disgusting drug-addled house that she was drunk in most nights. But, you know, like I at least had a place with a roof. Mm. I at le- You know, like I just, for so many women, this is just the, the end for mm. you. The first week passed, then the second, then the third. I actually felt like I was being tortured. I was desperate to get out of the house, but every time I tried to stand, nausea took over. I was starving, but every time I tried to eat, nausea took over. I was exhausted, but every time I tried to sleep, nausea took over. Nothing made it better. I'd lost weight. I was pale. I hadn't showered. I knew the Channel 9 and 10 daytime TV schedules by heart. The day before my appointment, I'd had enough. I called the clinic in tears and begged them to let me bring it forward a day. I'd barely heard the word yes before I was on the phone to Rhiannon, pleading with her to come and pick me up and drive me into the city. I had to lie down. I remember this so vividly. I had to lie down in the back seat of her car for the 45 minute drive because I just, I couldn't even sit upright. I was so sick. I was so weak. She had to help me walk to the clinic. At that stage, their prison-like security door was not holding me back from getting in that building. I would have smashed my way through if necessary. I was tapped into some Hulk-style determination to have this over with. (laughs) When inside, I was first taken to a side room to see the doctor. 
I told her what I'd been going through the last four weeks, that I'd basically hadn't left my bed since I'd been there last and that it was probably a bed that a masturbating train man with ceramic with a ceramic clown collection had slept in, so clearly I was serious. I told her that I hadn't been able to stand up in the shower, let alone work. All I'd eaten was dry toast and soup and sips of Gatorade and even that had been impossible to keep down. Even sitting upright in front of her at that moment was taking it out of me. Oh, she said, concerned. That's not normal. It sounds like you have hyperemesis gravidarum. It can be very serious. You really should have called or seen your GP. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what? 21-year-old without a home has a GP? Mm. Okay. This time I was the one to give the polite smile that's, that people give when it's taking everything within the deepest depths of their soul to be patient with the idiot in front of them. But I was too faint and too damn sick to get angry, not to mention last time I was there, I had rambled hysterically about an individual sperm having gastro, so I couldn't really blame her for not having taken me more seriously at the time. Most people have only heard of hyperemesis gravidarum, HG, because it's the thing Kate Middleton had when she was pregnant with the first of her royal spawn. Buckingham Palace mentioned it in a brief, polite statement, which made it sound like Kate was having a bit of a hiccup, but was otherwise, well, I know different. If Kate was going through anything like what I went through, there is no doubt in my mind that she is probably the first person in history to have ever yelled obscenities at the Queen from the bathroom floor. <laughs> I can just see the Queen in her sensible pastel two-piece suit inquiring as to whether Kate would bother getting out of bed today since ribbons that open flower shops don't just cut themselves. Kate, in a room down the hall, would wipe vomit from her face and yell, go cut a ribbon with your dick, Liz. <laughs> 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 before burying her face back in the decorative Wedgwood toilet. <laughs> I really do bring class to the profession of literature. <laughs> oh, dear. HG is officially described as a complication of pregnancy that is characterized by severe nausea and vomiting such that weight loss and dehydration occur, signs and symptoms may include vomiting several times a day and feeling faint. It is more severe than morning sickness. Simple things such as taking a shower, driving or shopping may feel impossible. Thanks, Wikipedia. Also, thanks for my bachelor's degree. <laughs> um, unofficially, Do you know what causes uh, it? No, it just, some some women get it. Okay. It'd you be- just don't know. And you don't even get it every time. That's why the second time I got pregnant, I didn't realize for so long because I just assumed if I ever got pregnant again, I would feel like this. You'd feel the so same I way. So I just did, I didn't notice. Like mm. apparently Kate had it with two of hers, but not the most recent one. It's just random, I think. I don't know. I could be wrong. Doctors might be screaming at the speakers right now, but I, I'm pretty sure it's just random. Mm. Unofficially, I would describe HG as so torturous I didn't care that I was sleeping on a mattress that was probably once owned by a masturbating train man with a ceramic clown collection. That's how badly I needed to be lying down all day, every day. I was sent into another room to get an ultrasound, which the technician told me was to make sure everything was in order for the procedure. I thought it was strange that she didn't just say the word abortion. We're all here to get abortions. We're in the building. I think we know the word. She also turned the screen away from me so I wouldn't have to see what was on it. 
I told her I don't mind and I honestly didn't. I wasn't in a mindset yet where I understood that this could be a painful decision for some women to make because to me it was nothing but a relief. Not because of the sickness I'd endured, but just because I didn't want to be pregnant. It was my body and I didn't want this to be happening to it. I didn't feel guilty or conflicted or tormented. I just felt relief. That's another effed up thing about America. And I think this is in all states. They make you look at the ultrasound. Oh, really? In Australia, they turn it away from you so you don't have to see it. In the US, they make you look at it and acknowledge it. Oh, that's torture. Isn't that awful? That's inhumane. Yeah, it's awful. That's so manipulative. I went back out to the waiting room and sat next to Rhiannon. One woman was crying at reception. Rhiannon told me the woman and her boyfriend had been in a huge fight out the front in the street and now she was telling the staff that she didn't think she could go through with it. She wanted to terminate. He didn't. He had stormed off and she was worried he would break up with her if she had the procedure. She was worried a man would break up with her for exercising control over her own body. I was just thinking how relieved I was that I didn't have to deal with something like that when my name was called. Go time. I was led into a small changing room and given a bag with a paper gown, paper slippers and a paper shower cap inside. I was told to change into those, put my clothes in the bag and hang the bag on the hook. Someone would come and get me in five minutes. Once I had changed, I sat on the bench waiting. The bench was high and I felt like a little girl because my feet didn't hit the ground and they were swinging. I was also embarrassed because I couldn't reach far enough back to tie the gown together properly. There were two doors, the one I came in through and the one on the other side that I assumed led into the operating theatre. It was so strange, sitting there waiting, nervous and full of adrenaline, feeling small and naked and unable to stop my feet from swinging back and forth. It's funny that it's called an operating theatre because waiting in that little room did remind me so much of waiting to go on stage, crammed into a dark space, full of nervous energy and suddenly so aware of your body, your breath, quietly waiting in the calm before the storm of the brightly lit stage. Hmm. The other door opened and the bright lights of the theatre room hit me. There were about three or four people in there, all in gowns, all with masks over their faces. A nurse took me by the hand and led me to the bed in the middle of the room. I put my legs up in the stirrups, I was given the drugs, and I fell asleep. The next thing I remember is like remembering a dream. And I just want to give a a little trigger warning here. This is where I describe quite graphically what I felt um, during the abortion. So if that's something you want to skip, I would say skip ahead about a minute here. It felt like someone was inserting a blunt knitting needle in and out of my vagina. It was being inserted deep and fast and I wanted it to stop. I was confused and I couldn't open my eyes. I tried to sit up, but someone held me down. A nurse held my hand. I remember her saying over and over, it's all right, honey. It's all right. It's nearly done. It's nearly done. The pain was excruciating. I, and I hate saying that because I don't want to scare any woman who makes the choice to abort a pregnancy, but that was my experience. I woke up, I couldn't move, and I felt like something long, thin, and hard was repeatedly being shoved deep into my vagina. It was excruciating. Okay, and I do want to say now that, yeah, please don't let that put you off going through with a surgical abortion if you need to, I would say get the general anaesthetic because then you do just get put to sleep. I I Mm -hmm. think it is because I was under light sedation and I would probably that you're, you're not actually asleep during light sedation. So just get the general is what I always say. Also back at this time, 
uh, medical abortion wasn't available in Australia, which is where you take the tablets. So you can also do that. Back then it wasn't legal yet here. Mm -hmm. Um, So please don't let what I just said scare you out of doing it. Just get the general or get a medical. That's Mm -hmm. okay. Back to the story. (laughs) Then I was sitting in a recliner chair in a different room. I don't remember how I got there, but my bag of clothes was on the table next to me. There were other women lying in beds and chairs like mine, maybe about five or six in total, all looking as dazed as I'm sure I did. A nurse brought me over some crackers and a glass of juice, and I sat for a while trying to piece together what had just happened. I looked at the clock. About 45 minutes had passed. I could remember being in the dark little changing room. I could remember getting onto the bed and putting my feet in the stirrups. I could remember pain. I could remember a lot of pain. I could remember moaning and wanting it to stop. I could remember a nurse holding my hand. And then in the middle of my confused haze, I suddenly noticed it. It was gone. The nausea was gone. The nausea was f***ing gone. My body finally felt like my own again. It literally was that instant. I woke up and I wasn't sick. It was amazing. I stood up and didn't keel over with the need to vomit. I had my life back. I changed into my own clothes and went out into the waiting room to meet Rhiannon. I just wanted to get the hell out of there and I wanted to eat. I wanted to eat a lot of food and I wanted to eat it immediately. (laughs) This is the most random thing. I must have been so out of it. Well, where do you want to go, Rhiannon said, clearly a little taken aback at the sudden change in me. I was one person going into that clinic and a very different person coming out. This person could walk and eat. This person really wanted to eat. Take me to Cabra Matter, I said. I really want to make Peking duck pancakes. (laughs) Now, now I don't remember any of what happened next, but the way Rhiannon tells it, I walked around Cabra Matter shops like a mad woman, buying all the ingredients to make Peking duck. Then she took me back to mum's house where I proceeded to prepare the duck, talking nonstop the whole time about feeling like I had been assaulted by a knitting needle while unable to move before stuffing my face with duck pancakes for 10 minutes and promptly falling asleep. I woke up the next day happier than I had been in a long time. I went back to work cleaning popcorn at the cinema, soon moved into a share house close to the city and started studying creative writing at university, none of which I could have done if not for my procedure. Do I wish it hadn't happened of all at all? Of course. Do I wish RU486, that's the uh, tablets you can take. Do I wish RU486 had been available at the time? Definitely. Do I wish I had picked the full general anesthetic over the bullshit you may feel some light discomfort twilight sedation option? Absolutely. But I do not regret my abortion at all, at all. I have never felt sadness or grief or even conflicted. I was never ambivalent. I only felt relief. My life today is what it is because I was allowed to make choices about what was best for my body. I got pregnant. I didn't want to be. I was in a position to change that. What a privileged position for a woman to be Mm. in. And I never slept on that masturbating train man's mattress again. P.S. Get the general anesthetic. (sighs) And that is the chapter I wrote about my abortion. (sighs) And then there was another one. Because mistakes happen and your circumstances still, second time around, weren't, you know, appropriate for you to see that pregnancy to term. Do you want, there's one little bit about the second one because I didn't really need to, you know, tell the whole thing again. So I'll read you this. 
I knew it as soon as I got that familiar wave of nausea. Fuck. I was pregnant again, less than a year after the first time. And I didn't have Kate Middleton's royal vomiting disease this time. In fact, I'd been feeling so normal that I hadn't even noticed I was pregnant and I was already 12 weeks. F***ing shit burgers, f***ity shit bag. I don't have a lot to say about this one, really. I only bring it up because almost every time I've read a personal story about abortion, it involves being emotionally scarred beyond repair, and it also only involves going through it once. It's almost like you're allowed to talk about it, but only if it was a one-off event that you will never forget and about which you will be tormented for the rest of your days. That is the price of admission for telling your abortion story. Safe, legal, and rare, remember? One is forgivable, but two, you're pushing it. You're taking advantage of the system feminists fought hard to protect. You're a slutty whore from Hawesville making us all look bad. Well, I am the slutty whore from Hawesville making us all look bad. Yes, I felt like an idiot at the time, but I'm not paying the shame price of admission to tell this story. I've had two abortions and I wasn't emotionally scarred by either of them. It may not be the story people like to hear, but I'm still allowed to tell it. Because while I completely understand and empathize with the women who did struggle and continue to struggle with their choice to terminate, I know there are just as many women like me, women who have felt nothing but relief, women who have had more than one, women who feel guilty that they don't feel guilty enough. Those women have stories too, and I rarely hear them so... I've had two abortions and I regret neither. P.S. The second time, I got the general anesthetic. <laughs> That's it. And by the way, <sighs> everyone, the second time, I just went to sleep and woke up and did not feel a thing. It was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh... That was just the gist of Rosie's abortions. Mm-hmm. There you go. And it's sort of... It helps put a personal slant on why it's so important for women to be able to make their own choices based on their yeah. own circumstances without external interference and legislation and bureaucracy getting in the way and religious interference. Mm. It's so sickening and it's so sad to hear about was, what's happening in Texas at the moment. I was 21. I was homeless. I had nothing. I was working in a job. I think I made like 11 bucks an hour. Mm. Like I, it would, my life was already shit and this would have decimated it. It would have decimated it. And you know what? Even if none of those things were true, even if I was in a completely privileged, brilliant position and it was just something I didn't want, Mm. that's still fine too. The choice is still yours. Women should just be able to have control over what they do with their own bodies and Mm. What has happened in Texas this last week, you know, like I said at the start, has just made me feel so defeated and sad and angry. And this is just one thing I felt like I could do. I'm a writer. I tell stories. That's my story. And you know what? I couldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you this story on this podcast, doing this. I went to university a year after all that happened. Do you know what I mean? I could never have done that. Like I'm sitting here the way I am, living the life I am right now. Because I got to do that. Yep, yep. Sorry to always bring everything back to Cher, but there's a really good movie <laughs> that she um, she produced, directed, and she starred in with Demi Moore called "If These Walls Could Talk." Mm. In the nineties, of course, 90s. I know of if these walls could know talk. That. Yeah, um, because Cher has always been very vocal in you know about the importance. The ending of, of making... that movie is 
Woofed. Oh, yeah, be ready for that. Um, Mm. It is not a happy ending at all, but it is a very powerful movie that's definitely Mm. worth watching. Um, She's been a real advocate for giving women the autonomy to make this decision for themselves without external influence and making it Mm. safe, making it legal, because it can be really damaging to the point of being life-threatening to put up barriers um, that end up making it really unsafe for women. The only thing that taking away abortions does is increases unsafe abortions. Mm -hmm. Women will want to have abortions no matter what. And if they can't do it safely, they'll do it any other way. And women will die. They will die. Mm. It's just, yeah. (sighs) So a bit of a different episode this week, but um, I just, I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't, I, I, I think I just needed to do this. And next week, um, we'll go back to regular programming, talking about our usual nonsense. Yes. And I didn't finish what I was saying. The reason that Cher cared so much about Oh, sorry. About I didn't. Abortions. I thought you were done. No, that's on <laughs> me. I'm lacking oxygen in this car, so I'm probably just <laughs> losing my train of thought. But the reason that she cares so much, I mentioned in the Cher episode that we did, mm. that her mother, Georgia, was almost going to get an abortion. And so she had had the experience of, you know, going Mm. to get an abortion. And um, she was very open in telling Cher about the fact that that was something that she planned to do. But then she decided on her own that it wasn't what she actually wanted to do. In her case, it was an external influence that was telling her she had to get rid of the baby and then Mm. she made the decision that she wanted to keep it. Um, But that was what then interested Cher in researching the different types of abortion clinics that were available across all the different Mm. states and then talking to women about their stories and that's why she decided to create that film because she felt like could sort of personalise for people and help them understand and empathise more with women that are considering going through Mm. with an abortion just as your chapter has helped to, you know, create a, an empathetic lens that people can look at the situation through. It's mm. not just black and white. It's an individual thing. Yeah, and how scary that we're getting to a point where it's not even that, like, in some places that are closer to us than what we think, you know. Mm. It's scary. Mm. So, um, yeah, uh, should we, I don't know, Sing a little jaunt or so. I don't know. Should we, should we try and lift the lift the mood or uh, shake it off? Shake it off. Oh, oh. oh everyone thinks I'm baby. Everyone thinks I'm baby on Mars Singer, and I'll never tell. As if I'd be allowed to tell. A lot of people have messaged saying they think I'm baby, and you know, can neither confirm nor deny. Well. To help fuel the rumours, I'll teach you a little song that you can sing. Um, Disney once made a cute little sex ed um, movie one time. It it was a little cartoon um, and they had ovaries in there dancing around singing ovary, ovara, ovary, (laughs) ovara, ovary, ovara, ovara, ovary, ovara. Oh my God, I need to see it immediately. Let's put a link in the show notes. We'll find it. And then there's also from Greece too the very famous song Reproduction. Reproduction, 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 reproduction. Where does the pollen go? <laughs> <laughs>
It's from Greece too. That's what they sing in Sex Ed at Rydell High. Okay, let's leave it there. Okay, bye, love everyone. You, bye. Bye. <laughs>